Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. One of the TV shows that Becky and I watched recently was uh, Good Omens. I don't know if you've heard of it or come across it. If you've not come across it, it's a, it's a Terry Pratchett story. It's utterly ridiculous, and it's based on the end of the world. You've got this angel and this demon and a whole sort of army of angels and demons who are working to bring about Armageddon. And in the story, the, um, one of the things the forces of darkness are working to do is bring together the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So if you remember in the book of Revelation, we've got um, war and famine and plague and uh, what's the last one? Death. Death. Uh, and they, they all ride horses, famously. Um, but the writers of Good Omens decided that this was a bit, a bit out of date, a bit old-fashioned, so they put them all on motorbikes. <laughs> Makes sense. And also they changed, they changed plague into pollution because they decided that in the 21st century, you know, we don't need to worry about disease anymore, do we? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that that decision hasn't, hasn't aged too well because it's now pretty obvious that mankind hasn't defeated plague and disease. Um, and the next couple of months are likely to bring that home to us in potentially pretty grim detail. But lethal diseases are nothing new in the middle ages the plague was was an annual event to be honest uh, it spread in cities across europe every single summer and the reason all the tudor nobility all the kind of well-off people had fancy houses in the countryside like chatsworth and lime and places like that it wasn't because they enjoyed the scenery and liked a holiday they needed to self-isolate every single summer because if they were in the city they'd die of plague like everyone else um, and that, that means that as a church, you know, we've got centuries of history and we've got lots of examples of how to respond when disease is taking root everywhere. So Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he, he had to deal with it. Plague hit Wittenberg where he lived. John, John Calvin, he had to deal with it as well. Um, but one example from church history sticks out for me, partly because of its proximity to us and partly because of its similarity to what Jesus had to face in today's story. So this is um, St. Lawrence's Church in Eam, uh, Derbyshire, just up the road. And in 1665, a bit of cloth got delivered into the village of Eam in the middle of nowhere in the Peak District, and it was infected with bubonic plague. And one of the tailor's assistants, a few days later, he caught the plague and he died. And the local vicar, William Mompesson, he was, he was sharp. And he realized pretty quickly that this was serious and the village had some pretty tough decisions to make because, you know, normal life in Eam, you'd had people buying and selling and trading and riding and just doing normal things. And he knew if they continued doing normal things, then that disease would spread. It would spread throughout the villages. It would spread throughout the whole Peak District. It would get to Derby and Mansfield and Rotherham and Stockport. And soon, you know, there'd be a lot of misery in a lot of different places. Um, but if, as a village, they quarantined themselves, then they could save all of those lives, potentially. And it was kind of like the village was on trial, in a way, because villagers, individuals, they could choose to do the self-serving thing, which would be to 
get out of town and hope they don't catch it. Or they could choose to serve others and the, all the people around them by staying put and keeping the disease local and keep it from spreading. And it, it wasn't an easy decision, but William Monpesson, the vicar, had a deep faith in God and he really, he really trusted in God's love for him and he knew that, that death isn't the end. And through his preaching and leadership, he managed to persuade the whole village to um, stay put. And the hundreds of villagers, they trusted God through the season of plague and, you know, hundreds of them died. But as a village, they saved thousands upon thousands of lives in the surrounding area. They were giving themselves to save others. And, you know, we're in a church this morning. Hopefully that kind of thing reminds you of, reminds you of somebody, that sort of sacrifice. Um, in today's Bible reading, we've got two pretty similar situations, really, where people are on trial and they've got to choose whether they're going to serve themselves or they're going to serve God. And Jesus, like the people of Eme, we know how this one ends, he chooses God and he saves not just thousands, but billions of lives in the process. Whereas Peter, Peter chooses himself. And I suppose one challenge for us is who, who are we going to choose to serve? So let's get on to the story. If you were here two weeks ago, you'd have heard Phil preaching on Jesus's betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you can see this painting, you can see pretty much everything you need to see. There's Judas in the middle betraying Jesus with a kiss. And then behind, you've got the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. I think in the bottom left, you can just about see Peter trying to cut someone's ear off, but it's not entirely clear. And then on the right, of course, you've got the, um, the naked guy scarpering off because he's lost his clothes. Um, and what happens next is that this gang of soldiers, which um, probably about 300 men, they end up taking Jesus away into Jerusalem. Um, and all Jesus' followers abandon him, except for Peter, who follows at a distance. What happens next is we get two trials. Jesus is upstairs in front of the high priest. And Peter is downstairs in front of the servants. John's going to come and uh, read for us. So... Yeah, you can, you can come up. If you come up, this might catch you and then you'll be on the recording. Um, so, yeah, do follow along. Um, the words will be up on the screen. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then, <clears throat> then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter, near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thanks, John. Let's go back to the beginning. The Sanhedrin, who Jesus is in front of, that's the highest Jewish court in the land, universally respected. Their authority was recognized by the Romans for certain things at least. And for Jews, they brought God's justice to the people of Judea. Um, But there are some hints tonight that they're not strictly following protocol. So firstly, there's there's the location. They're in the high priest's palace. It's literally his house. They're in his front room. They did have a law court. They had a place where these sorts of trials should take place, but that's not where they were. Secondly, you've got the time. You know, Jewish court processes weren't too different from ours. A trial would take several days to give people time to deliberate, and a serious trial would take even longer, much like like ours. Also, of course, they'd all happen in the day. Like, stuff happening at night was not normal. So the time is weird. Thirdly, the people, because it's both... It's both rushed and staged, this process. You've got, firstly, the soldiers. You've got 300 soldiers who've gone to arrest just one man in the park. 300 people is a lot of people. That's like three symphony orchestras worth of people all gone to arrest Jesus. Um, And also, you know, the the whole Sanhedrin was there. There's at least 25, 30 people, maybe as many as 70, who all happen to be in the high priest's house in Passover night. This was well organised. This was planned. Um, And fourthly, the witnesses. So in Jewish law, you needed to have the witness for the defense speak first. So the defense had to have the opportunity to speak first. And then you'd call witnesses for the prosecution, and you needed two of them to agree in order to secure a conviction. And um, obviously that's not what we see here. So all in all, we find a court that's not looking to follow process. It's not looking to do things properly. They're not interested in justice. They just want to convict Jesus, do it quickly. But we find out that nothing sticks because Jesus has done nothing wrong. And as the court session drags on, it kind of becomes a bit awkwardly obvious to everybody. And none of these, they're paying off these witnesses, presumably, but they can't agree on anything. And both Jesus and the high priest realize that actually the high priest, the guy who's supposed to be the judge, well, he's the one who's um, breaking all the rules. And the man in the dock? Well, he's, he's done nothing wrong. I think maybe someone should tell Alanis Morissette that if she's looking for an example of something that's actually ironic, she could find it here. So, Jesus' trial, the, the accusations are false and the risk is death. But what does Jesus choose to do? Well, For most of the trial, he stays silent because 
he knows what's going on, as we said. He's, in, he's the one who's in control here. But when he does choose to speak, despite all the pressure that he's under, he tells the truth. He admits who he is. And not only that, but for Jesus, this is, this is the clearest statement of his identity in the whole of Mark's gospel. Because when Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. For us, it, sound, it sounds a bit weird because we don't recognize the references. He's, he's picking up almost song lyrics from hundreds of years ago. And everybody in the Sanhedrin would have recognized these Old Testament quotations because they knew, it, they knew them back to front and upside down. And Jesus is taking these prophecies, these poems, and applying them to himself. So firstly, we've got Psalm 110 where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. And as that psalm goes on, we find out it's about a king who is ruling over God's kingdom, interceding for God's people and judging God's enemies. And here Jesus is saying, it's it's all about me, him. And then the other one is um, from the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Uh, where the prophecy says, There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And when you put these two prophecies together, it's kind of like dynamite. We get this vision of Jesus in all his glory, ruling in power and majesty and might and strength and drawing worship and adoration from all over the world. This is the true picture. And it means that Jesus is saying, not only am I the Christ, God's promised savior, come to restore Israel into relationship with God, but I'm also the king. I'm equal with God the Father. I'm given all glory and power and authority. And I'm also the judge. And I'm coming to return, I'm going to return and bring justice to the earth. Christ, King, and Judge. It's a huge, huge statement. But um, obviously the the high priest doesn't exactly listen. Um, He just sort of takes offense and ends up bundling Jesus off to the thugs who give him a bit of a roughing up. And then he goes on to Pilate and we'll find out what happens next, next week if you don't already know. Um, but so that's Jesus and the high priest's version of events that night so let's change the camera angle and look at Peter's story as well because in lots of ways Peter's story is pretty similar to Jesus he's also he's also on his own and uh, he doesn't realize it at the time but he's being put through a kind of trial as well there are allegations that Peter has to face only this time they're true and there are consequences to telling the truth but this time they're pretty minor. And I think so far this evening, Peter's actually been pretty brave. You know, he seems to be making good on his promise not to abandon Jesus. He's, it's taken him right into the danger zone. He's gone to the high priest's courtyard, and now we find him scared, yes, alone, yes, but probably quite proud of himself as well. You know, everyone else ran away. And we don't know exactly what he's planning on doing once he's got there, but I guess he's got some ideas about watching, waiting, trying to gather some intelligence, figure out what the gossip is coming out of the court, maybe be able to bring back some news to the other disciples who'll be impressed, that sort of thing. Maybe he's even dreaming of a big sort of movie star moment, big moment of high drama where 
he steps in and gives this rousing speech to intervene and save the day and rescue Jesus. You know, maybe that's the kind of thing he's sort of got at the back of his mind. But what's definitely not part of his plan is any attention right now. Uh, not yet, at least. So when the servant girl spies Jesus, uh, spies Peter in the light of the fire and tells him she recognizes him, well, Peter's, I think he's putting a bit of a pickle, really, because what she's saying is, what she's saying is true. It'd be, it'd be disobeying God straight out to um, deny it. But what happens if he fesses up? I reckon most likely the, the servant girl's, she's not going to you know, leave it there, is she? She's going to start badgering him. She's going to start asking him more questions. She's going to want to know what he's doing there. She's maybe, she wants to pick up some gossip, find out a bit more about Jesus from the inside. Uh, and she'll obviously get everyone else involved as well, all the guards that are hanging around, all the other servants. Everyone will know who Peter is, and they'll want to know what he's doing there. And once they've had their fill of gossip, they'll say, well, on your bike, get out. We don't want you here anymore. Um, and the whole experience for Peter will be pretty humiliating. There won't be any espionage. There won't be any triumphant return to the disciples loaded with secrets that he's garnished. There won't be any moment of high drama allowing Peter to be the hero. Uh, to be honest, there won't have even been any point in him going to the courtyard at all. That means all of his bravery so far will have been completely in vain. He'll be left embarrassed. And so for Peter, I think it's, it's his pride that's at stake here. But we need to understand that his pride is the only reason he went to the high priest's courtyard in the first place. He was trying to prove to himself and to Jesus that he's the most loyal of the disciples. He's you know, worthy to be the leader of the disciples. And it's that reputation that matters to him more than anything else. So when push comes to shove, he tells a little white lie to try and protect his reputation. He chooses to serve himself rather than serve God. And, you know, I don't think this is a big whiz-bang denial, not yet at least. It's more of a shrug of his shoulders and a little mutter, and then he slinks off away into the shadows and hopes the whole thing blows over because, you know, it probably won't matter. She's only a slave girl. Everyone will forget. And to be honest, I don't want to be too harsh on Peter because feels like this first denial is only a, it's only a little sin. If his, liars, if his lie had worked as he'd hoped, maybe he'd have got away with it. Who knows what would have happened? But um, unfortunately for him, the slave girl refuses to let it go, and he ends up forced into stronger and stronger denials until he ends up calling down curses on himself and denying the God he claims to serve. And I think what we find out here is that there's not really such a thing as a little sin. Peter thought there was. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, describes our hearts and our souls as a kind of battleground between uh, good and evil, between God and the devil. And what C.S. Lewis says is that uh, when we ignore God and serve ourselves, even in pretty minor, pretty trivial ways, it really matters. We're allowing evil to flourish in our lives and in the world. This is how he puts it in mere Christianity. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point 
from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack that had otherwise been impossible. Um, and I think Peter would have agreed with C.S. Lewis because, after all, some years later he writes in one of his letters that the, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And maybe Peter had this night in mind when he wrote those words. I also find it interesting how this C.S. Lewis... You can tell he's writing in 1946, 1947, because he just loves his wartime analogies and metaphors. It's kind of weird language for us because we don't tend to lose bridgeheads or ridges or railways because I don't think any of us have been involved in a war. I think every one of us will have something some area of our lives where we've got used to picking our way over God's way. Maybe it's a habit of laziness that we've got into at work. Maybe it's a sexual sin that we're choosing to indulge. Or maybe it's a grudge that we're keeping against somebody. Maybe even somebody in this room. I think for me, one of the ways this plays out is in boldness. It's, um, it's the ideas for ways to serve God that I choose not to act on. Or it's the things that I think God's saying I need to say to people that I end up staying, staying silent. Um, the other day, some friends in the pub started talking about Richard Dawkins, and I didn't really know what to say, but I knew I should say something, but I just listened and let them talk. And I chickened out. And I think, you know, every time I chicken out of saying or doing something that's faithful, I can make excuses for myself, and I can pretend it doesn't matter. There'll always be a next time. But um, it does matter, actually. It makes me less likely to be obedient that next time. It, makes, it means that there's potentially a whole load of God's blessing that I could be bringing that I'm, I'm not or I haven't been. And it feels like I could, I could, almost, I could almost leave this preach here. We, you know, we could end with the question, who are we going to choose to serve? Are we going to choose to serve God or are we going to choose to serve ourselves? And that would be a good challenge and it would be a good place to finish. But I can't quite because there's one more twist to the story. And that is that the cock crows. And Peter realises that he's stuffed up. He realises that his, his little white lie was nothing of the sort. He realises he's betrayed his master and that nothing's going to be the same again. And so we, we see the hardy Galilean fisherman breaking down in tears crushed you see peter had he completely misunderstood something about god and it's something really important about god that i think we find really easy to forget as well because in peter's mind there was a reason that jesus had chosen him to be a leading disciple and it was that he had something to offer jesus he reckoned that jesus needed his bravery his leadership his talent but in this moment, as the rooster wakes everybody up, well, Peter realises that he's not all he's cracked up to be, or all he thought he was cracked up to be, at least. He's, um, he's not as brave or talented as he thought, and he thinks that that's the end of the road for him. But Peter's, Peter's got God all wrong, because God doesn't need our help, and he doesn't work through us because we're good at things. And that also means he can work through us, even if we're bad at things. 
We need to remember that what, what Jesus said about himself earlier on. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's, that's Jesus right now, enthroned in heaven with all of creation at his command. He doesn't need us to do anything. He wants us to get involved in the cool stuff that he's doing. And he knows it will be good for us to join in. For me, I think one of the one of the biggest surprises after Peter's, let's be honest, it's an abject failure in this story, isn't it? One of the biggest surprises is how the story ends. A couple of weeks later, he preaches his first sermon and 300 people become Christians. That's um, quite impressive. And the story ends with, Jesus as, uh, with Peter as the most famous Christian leader in all of history. He, he's the first bishop of Rome. He's probably one of the most significant men in history ever. And I think that's not what you'd expect to happen next after this, with him in tears at the high priest's courtyard. But our, our God is a God who does the unexpected. And this story tells us that Jesus didn't choose Peter to do great things because Peter was great. It shows us quite the opposite. Jesus is the one who's great in this story. God chooses to work through ordinary people who mess up in ordinary ways. In fact, the one thing that needed to happen before Peter could start leading the church was exactly this. He needed to realize just how useless he was without God. So yeah, I find this story an amazing encouragement because you know, I often feel a bit useless. I don't really know the best way to share um, Christ with my friends and family. And I know that it's often my own sin that gets in the way. And maybe you're the same. Uh, or maybe there's something that's happened in the past, one occasion in particular, like this night for Peter, where you, you know that you failed God and that guilt is weighing pretty heavily on you. Or maybe you're just discouraged. You look out the window and you see a city of a million people going their own way and you wonder how 50 of us in this room can change anything. So here's the good news. Jesus died on that cross to set us free. That means the decisions... And the mistakes that we've made in the past, they don't define us. And if we repent of them, we will be forgiven. And it'll be as if they never happened in the first place. And if we're feeling weak or useless, well, Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost is the next turning point in Peter's life. We are weak and useless. But we've got the strongest and most useful power in the universe working through us. So that means that we can have a go. And I think, in a way, that's kind of all God's asking us to do. Listen to his words, think about what they mean, and have a go at putting them into practice. And if we do that, God will be with us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us?